when the Armageddon happens, you might not be able to find your crystal bowl. Make sure that as a teacher or as a healer, that you really know what the hardcore substance of what you're teaching is. This is David Harshadab Wagner. Welcome to Woke and Wired, a new conversation about expanded consciousness and entrepreneurship. We are here to shift the paradigm of business and marketing and social media in this digital age of infinite possibility and bridge our inner technology, our intuition with outer technology through rituals, personal development tools, conscious business practices, spiritual tools, and the magical tool of social media. I am your host, Xenia, storyteller, conscious social media teacher, speaker, and a multidimensional traveler. Welcome to the new paradigm. One of the reasons I started the podcast is because over the years of my own spiritual path, I have met so many incredible teachers along the way that I really wanted to share with with as many people as possible. And today I am so excited and honored to introduce you to my own, what could be first spiritual teacher, David Harshita Wagner. I met him probably about 10 years ago in New York City, and I started attending his meditation sessions weekly at a yoga studio in Dembo. And then I ended up doing a deep training with him. At the time, it was called a spiritual leadership training. That was a nine-month commitment where meditation became part of my own daily practice. And as part of that, I also ended up going on a pilgrimage to India with Harshita that completely shifted my perspective on really everything. In this conversation that we recorded in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, we chat about the mystical path. And even though we schedule this conversation way before all of this unfolded, it feels more relevant than ever, both for this and really beyond that. Because right now we're being called more than ever to step up our practice, to look at the parts of our lives that are not working. And I personally see this situation that is happening as an invitation to look at our lives. It's like this review. Okay, am I doing what I'm committed to? Are my actions in the world representing that? What am I devoted to? What am I living for? And how am I showing up for myself and others on a daily basis? And does what I do to make money align with my values as a human and as a soul? In this conversation, we go into what is a mystical path and how Harshida got on a mystical path through his own life and the challenges that he has been through. We talk about being plugged into the source in the midst of all that is. We cover establishing a daily practice. And one of the ways that David defines practice is whatever puts us in relationship with grace or oneness or universe or God, whatever word you feel comfortable using. I was very uncomfortable with the word God. I didn't grow up religious until very recently, during some of my most mystical experiences after years of practice, when I just realized, okay, God is just one way of referring to the same thing that is oneness, that is consciousness, that is love. And if any of these things 
any of these concepts or words, they repel you, there's something to be looked at. And that's actually something that we cover in this conversation as well. We talk about finding your spiritual teacher, and we also talk about finding your way as a spiritual teacher and as a spiritual leader. Because in today's world, being a spiritual teacher and reaching lots of people involves sharing your message online. And this is one of my personal missions in the world is to empower healers and creatives and teachers to have the tools, have the courage, have the resources and clarity in sharing your message out with the world so that the more people can get awakened and healed. And one of the dilemmas that comes up is, okay, well, if I'm sharing something so sacred, then does the branding and the marketing, how do I keep that in integrity so that it doesn't feel like it's not in alignment with the sacredness of the teachings I'm sharing with the world? And in the end of the conversation, David covers that so beautifully. Ever since we had this conversation, I couldn't stop thinking about the beautiful metaphor that he brought into the space. So if you're someone who has been thinking to yourself, it's time for me to step up my self-care routine, my spiritual practice, to rediscover what it means to be on a mystical path and to really become more devoted to being an alive and awake human being, this is an episode you will really, really enjoy and take a lot from. If you're interested in more of the nitty-gritty of the business side of things, I recommend you check out the episode 93 with Allison Charles and also episode 95 where I share my own experience and some of the things I've been tapping into with the pandemic that's happening in the world and what kind of possibility it opens up to so many people as we embrace the digital world as the new norm. And what does that mean and how can we tap into it and instead of freezing in fear, actually be in action and take the steps toward the vision that you've been holding for a long time. And if you've been listening to the podcast for a while and you are ready to take a more serious step towards really expressing your gifts and your offerings with the world, then check out my Podia page that I'm going to link in the show notes. You can check out the Conscious Social Media Program, the eight-week program that completely redefines how you show up online, covers both the energetic realm and the physical realm with very specific actions. And I share everything I know that I have used to build my own platforms and revenue streams in the program. And there's also the Woken Wired Portal, which is a monthly membership with a monthly group meeting where you can ask me anything. And it's a safe space off social media for conscious entrepreneurs, creatives, and healers to come together and create the new way of being. The new paradigm, the new consciousness is here and we're all being called to step up to it. So if you just want to keep listening to the podcast and following me along on Instagram, that's fine too. But if you have this, even the smallest inkling, the smallest calling to take it a step further, those offerings are there for you. And I trust that whoever is meant to be part of them will sign up and be part of them so that I can serve you in the highest way possible that I can. But in the meantime, for the next 40 minutes or so, just get cozy and enjoy this conversation and soak up all the wisdom that is both in Harshita's 
words, but also in his gentle and kind and loving presence, which I have gotten so much from over the years. So a little more about David Harshida Wagner. He's a teacher, a pastor, an author, and a proud father who has dedicated more than 30 years of his life to the path of selfless service, spiritual awakening, and radical self-transformation. He has been helping people from all walks of life all over the world to walk the spiritual path for more than 25 years. His training is vast and varied, from traditional Christian teachings to 12-step recovery training, Indian wisdom, traditions of yoga, bhakti, vedanta, and tantric shavism. As a teacher and pastor, he draws teachings not only from tradition and scripture, but from his decades of personal transformation and his experience serving others to find their authentic path to true deep happiness. David teaches online and also on the faculties of GLOW, which is a fantastic website and app, as well as Kripalu and Omega Institutes. And he also travels widely training teachers and working with people from all walks of life. He is the author of Backbone, The Modern Men's Ultimate Guide to Purpose, Passion, and Power, and is currently authoring several other books. You can go to davidhwagner.com to learn more about David and some of the training he's done and his teachers. Thanks to him, years ago I discovered Ram Das, who has had a tremendous impact on my own path with his book, Be Here Now. All the trainings and programs that David mentions in this episode, you can find on his website, davidhwagner.com. And also, if something speaks to you during this interview, or there's a takeaway or a quote that you want to share on social media, please do so and tag at WokenWired and at David H. Wagner. I really, really love seeing what resonates with you, what lands with you, and what moves you. All right, here's David Harshida. Okay, Harshida, we scheduled this chat before everything unfolded in terms of the pandemic. And I had specific things I was really excited to talk to you about that still feel very much relevant. And the reason I'm feeling so connected to your work and teachings now is, well, first, because you were one of my very first spiritual teachers that I worked with probably 10 years ago now when I came to your meditation class that was happening every Monday night, I think, at a Bio Yoga in Brooklyn and Dumbo. And that's what really, that was my entryway into the world of spiritual practice and having that be an important part of my life and being part of a community with similar interests. Because before then, I really never felt like there was a sense of belonging for me in any city I've been in including cities I grew up in or went to schools with, it's only really when I tapped into a spiritual community where I felt like New York accepted me, probably because I accepted myself. But I felt a sense of belonging probably for the first time. So I just recently went on your retreat at Kripalu, and I have so many notes. I started a new journal at the retreat, and there's so many things I want to touch on and share with people because the way that you teach connection to the divine, to grace, 
to oneness, to God, whatever resonates with you listening. It's just so relatable and it's so real and you bring such a sense of playfulness to it. And I'm excited to share you with my listeners today for for all these reasons and beyond. Oh, that is such a a wonderful reflection, Ksenia. Thank you. So uh, where am I finding you today and where's your heart at and what are you up to? (laughs) That's a good question. So you are finding me today in my home in Ojai, California. It's just a couple hours outside of Los Angeles. It's a small little town. And I'm here with my partner and my two small kids. I have a five-year-old daughter and an eight-year-old son. And we are staying at home (laughs) because of the shelter-in-place social distancing. And this is, you know, where I'm based when I'm not traveling and teaching. I was supposed to be traveling and teaching at the moment, but with everything that's happening, I am enjoying being home for the most part. Where my heart is at at the moment, I feel a really deep calling to my teaching, to my service, to being available for people. And it's interesting, you started off saying that you had questions prepared, you know, before the world situation changed that haven't changed that much. And that's really my feeling too, is that, you know, this movement started way back for me way back in December. And it really has not changed that much. This, the fact that I'm confined to the house for the most part is a technical challenge. But, you know, my heart is just really about staying connected to spirit and helping other people to be connected to spirit at this time when it really counts. And I feel like that's always been my approach to spirituality has been, you know, for it to be as practical as possible, you know, really where the rubber meets the road in people's lives. And, you know, at a time like this, it's just really revealed what our connection is, where our, you could say, weak spots are. And, you know, I feel like it's a real call to action, a call to service. I love that so much. And I'm with you on a subconscious level. I also was feeling all of this before it actually happened in the external world. I was in New York City and I didn't tell anyone I'm in New York City. And I literally wasn't leaving the house like for 10 days before the quarantine started. So, you know, it's not really what I want to give our energy to, to intuition. What I want to focus on more is this mystical path that more and more people are being called to more and more deeply because there's just really, that's the most important thing that we can all turn to. And before we get to the more practical things and what you do to help people when they're on mystical paths, I would love to hear about your own path and how you became a teacher who works with people of all kinds all over the world who leads pilgrimages to India, which I was lucky to go on, and is just such a a beautiful heart-driven and kind and generous teacher to so many. What brought you here? I mean, the short answer to that is that I had so many great teachers. You know, going all the way back to when I was in high school, 
you know, as a teenager, it's when I first started getting interested and involved in self-work and, you know, spiritual work and meditation. And yeah, I've just had amazing teachers throughout my life and mentors. And I feel like was really initiated into a spiritual journey that on one hand was very traditional, but also was very unorthodox at the same time, which I feel like kind of describes my teaching in a certain way, because I like everything to be really rooted in, in tradition and in, you know, old teachings and old traditions. But the people that I work with are generally people who are nonconformists and, you know, people who are not going to relate to something that is very orthodox. And the other part of the short story, the short answer to that question is that I really needed it. You know, I first got into spirituality as a teenager because I was a drug addict. And, you know, I went to 12-step program in the middle of America, in the middle of Illinois, in the little town that I grew up in. And that's where I first discovered all the spiritual principles and really everything that I've gotten into learning yoga and meditation and the Eastern spirituality that I am mostly known for teaching is all built on needing help, (laughs) like needing help to be okay, needing help to, you know, in my case, I didn't really have any examples of people that were happy even or successful in a deep way growing up. And the spiritual path and the people that I met along the path really, I feel like, just gave me a shot at not only, you know, in those days, not only not going to jail or not, you know, dying a young, a young death, but actually gave me a shot at this magnificent life. And, you know, that's how I've always approached it. And, you know, life keeps changing and life keeps throwing curveballs and life keeps, you know, giving me opportunities to put my money where my mouth is. And, you know, my practice today is it has that same sense of urgency that it did for me when I was a 17 year old trying to get sober, really and truly at 48 years old, you know, almost you know, 32 or 33 years of sobriety at this point. At that level, things haven't changed that much. So as a teacher, that's how I am approaching the whole conversation, the whole relationship. And those are the kind of students that I like to magnetize or people who, you know, it's not like a, it's not like a a hobby or something cool to try or, you know, something that is, an adventure necessarily, but it's like something that is a remedy, something that is really going to help people to to live their life in a different way. I feel like in today's world, there's so many aspects of spirituality that have become so widely acceptable. And yet there's so many that still very much trigger a lot of things in people, whether that's skepticism or conditioning or whatever that is, maybe you can speak to either some of the things that you, that were on your way of giving into this way of life that is surrendered to the divine plan. 
And maybe you can also speak to some of the things that you see working with people around the world. What's in people's way of truly living this way fully? Well, you know, I think that part of it, and I'm sure you see this from your seat and in what you do, is that if someone's going to get involved in spiritual training in 2020, probably they're going to be connecting to whatever they're connecting to in a sort of an industry or a sort of a marketplace. And because of that, people are entering into their studentship, not as students as much as as customers. <laughs> so what I mean by this is that, you know, like when I like I said, I first got connected to spirituality and 12-step programs in, in Illinois in the 1980s. And it was the only thing. It was the only thing that I had. And so I just, and I really needed it. So I just, I gobbled it up. I was a very thirsty, a very thirsty horse. And so I just drank all the water that was given to me. And the notion of what triggered me or what I was uncomfortable with, it didn't really matter because it was like, okay, well, you're not comfortable with this idea, you know, for instance, God, you know, so the word God is used in the 12 steps and it's right there plastered on the wall. And, you know, I came in as a nonconformist, you know, kind of punk kid and I didn't like that it was called God. I didn't like that it was called him, you know, that it was referred to in the masculine. And, but the teaching was, oh, really? You don't like that? Too bad. Would you rather get over that or would you rather like go back to drugs and end up, you know, locked up or in a ditch zone? <laughs> you know, and, and there's something about that that I'm so grateful for because traditionally that's what a spiritual student would be offered you know their their ego wasn't catered to their sensibilities weren't catered to you know they would trek their way to india or they would find some master to study with and there would be so many things that would be uncomfortable and that same message was sort of there like oh you don't like this well too bad do you do you want this and if you want this then you know get resilient if you want this then you know, leave the bathwater and, and find the baby. But in a marketplace, it's not like that. In a marketplace, especially when there's so many things that are available, then we go into a sort of a customer mentality. And in a customer mentality, right, the customer is always right. Whereas <laughs> in the spiritual training mentality, it's almost like the customer is always wrong. Because, you know, the, the whole, like, in AA, they would say, uh, well, your best thinking got you here. Meaning like, try, let's try not doing it your way because your way is, you know, what got you in such a mess to begin with. Why don't you try another way? And so, you know, when somebody is like looking for a training or looking for a teacher, they nowadays might tend to look for what they like, look for what doesn't rub them the wrong way look for what kind of validates their way in some way. And I think that there are pros and cons to that. I think it's beautiful, the array of opportunities, options that people have today. But then, like you said, when they run up against the thing that's uncomfortable, which is inevitable, then they'll just be like, oh, 
well, I don't like this. I'm going to try something different. Or I don't like this aspect of the training, so I'm just not going to do that part. Whereas when we're approaching it more traditionally, it's a remedy. So it's like we have to take some medicine maybe that we don't necessarily want to take or enjoy taking for the sake of the process, if that makes sense. And so I think that just that general approach is a little bit mixed up these days. And I see a lot of people running up against that where it's just, you know, it's not that big of a hurdle, actually. It's just like a little opinion one way or the other. It's not that big of a deal. And, and, you know, sometimes people can really let those things go and get so much benefit when they're able to do that. But we're just not used to doing that these days. How do I identify this line between something that's actually not for us and is not meant for us versus something that triggers something in us because we are meant to go deeper in it? And I think this goes not just for choosing your spiritual teacher, but really, in my experience, for every business decision I make, for every personal life decision I make. What has your experience been with that? My gosh, that is such a deep question. And, and it's such a subjective experience, you know, it's such an, I won't even say subjective, it's a really intimate experience. Sometimes just through trial and error, you know, you know, sometimes, this is a silly example, but I think that this can, this can be a helpful example. You know, years ago, I did a lot of training in these ashram kind of environments where you would be seated in a meditation hall with lots and lots of people. And generally, you would be seated, like you'd come to the door and a host would come and sort of bring you to your seat. And one time, I can't remember which teacher said this, but they said sometimes, and sometimes you'd be seated next to someone who was really annoying you. <laughs> and in, in fact, if you got to the event and you saw somebody in the lobby that just really got under your skin for some reason, you just started projecting or judging them or whatever inevitably you would end up sitting next to that person, you know? Anyway, so I just believe that that's how grace works sometimes, is that it will just it'll just organize circumstances in our life to, you know, help us to heal and grow. But then what this teacher said is they said, sometimes you're seated next to that person because you need to get over whatever your annoyance is with that person. Sometimes you're seated next to that person because you need to learn how to raise your hand and ask for another seat. And I think that that's, you know, like that's always stuck with me. And that is such an intimate, that's such an intimate observation that you're making within yourself. But that's why, you know, one of those first things I believe to get sorted for you is to make sure that you have some good spiritual mentoring. And like, you know, a spiritual mentor, a spiritual teacher, someone who is not going to cater to your ego, but that also really sees your greatness and that is really going to be in your corner and be advocating for your greatness. And somebody that you can trust to give you that reflection sometimes of like, no, you know, David, this is something that you really need to, that you need to face. Or actually, this is something that you need to move on from. And, you know, but even finding that teacher or finding that mentor, you're going to have to face these same things. Right. Who some of those teachers have been for you? Oh, my gosh. 
it's just, I have so, it just opens my heart to even be asked that question. I mean, I've had like, like big teachers, you know, like gurus that I have, I, I trained with Guru Mai Chidvalasananda for many, many years. And she was like my guru, but it was like a guru in a big scene, you know, where there was not that much personal interaction. But then under her were so many other kind of senior teachers that did give me a tremendous amount of mentoring. And a lot of times in that context, it's in the context of service and seva. And, you know, you're given sort of a job and then you have people supervising you and you're working on teams and and that sort of thing. But I, that really, you know, that combination of someone who sees and advocates for my greatness, but also is a little bit ruthless for me, this is my personal, this is my personal choice, but I like a teacher that is a little bit ruthless with my ego. Someone, someone that's not afraid to say, yeah, I think that that's bullshit. You need to let that go. That goes, you know, for my spiritual teachers that I've had right down to my therapist. That's how my therapist is with me. You know, I know he loves me so much and he, you know, really is the first one to applaud anything that needs to be applauded. And he's also the first one to call bullshit if there's some unconsciousness that I'm not seeing. Yes. Actually, I've had someone on the podcast, Sage Dammers, who grew up in Guru Mai's, I don't know what the right word is, commune. Yeah, ashram or community. There's, it depends on what it actually was. Yeah. Yeah. So I think a lot of people will be looking her teachings up. So on your retreat, you spoke about, you know, I started a new journal. I have so many things that I'm still soaking in and processing and taking on to live and not just write down in my journal. And one of them was plugged in, being plugged into the source in the midst of all that is. And all of that kind of fits in into the overarching theme of what does it mean to be on a mystical path and be devoted to a mystical path on a daily basis. What does that mean to you? Yeah, I've been teaching about this, you know, during this time of crisis quite a bit. There's this teaching that I love that comes from the from the Bhagavad Gita, where, you know, in the Bhagavad Gita, the voice of God or the voice of, of source is Krishna. Krishna is talking to this character, Arjuna, who is really the voice of the disciple or the voice of the seeker. And so the whole scripture is a conversation. But in this one passage, he says, Krishna says, all of this is strung on me like pearls on a string. And when he says all of this, he means everything, everything in the universe. All of this is strung on me like pearls on a string. You know, so, you know, think of like a mala or a string of beads. And I think that it's a combination of having beads and string. So it's like the string is that spiritual principle that everything is organized around. And then the beads are, you know, as you said, you know, staying plugged in in the midst of everything. It's the everything. It's the beads that we really cherish and that we really love and that we really choose and that we've like manifested consciously and, you know, we put on our gratitude list and all of that. But then it's the beads that the universe gives us that we don't really want. And then it's all of the different aspects of ourselves, the ones that we love and the ones that we don't. But if our practice can give us that relationship with that 
sacred principle that ties it all together, then all of those beads are held in a different sort of a context, if that makes sense. And what I like to say is that there have to be both because like people that just have beads and they don't have that string, that's a sort of a materialistic you know, experience, including spiritually materialistic. A lot of people, they have lots of spiritual beads, but they don't necessarily have that actual experience of the sacred running through it. It's just, they just have a collection of practices and teachers and, you know, healing certifications and stuff. So without the string, then those beads, they're, they lack a, they lack a, an order. They lack a, a safety in a certain way. But then sometimes people just have the string and they don't have the beads or they ignore the beads. And that's a sort of a spiritual insanity, you know, where people are like, well, I have God, I don't need anything else. Or, you know, you know, I'm a soul, I don't, I'm not a body, I'm not affected by viruses. So thank you very much. I'm, you know, I'm going to the gym, (laughs) you know, or like, you know, in Pakistan, the, the, the mosques are all staying open during the pandemic because they don't want to anger God. You know, like that's a different kind of insanity where we're super focused on the sacred, but, you know, we're ignoring all of the, all of the material reality. It's like a combination of both. It sounds like the string is consciousness and the beads are the being human. Yeah. Yeah. They're being human, and, but the beads are also all of the, all of the things so the things that are being human in our realm, but then there are all the other humans. They're beads on the string too, you know? And then all of the things that all those other humans are doing, those beads are on our string as well. And, and that, I think, is that's the big shift is when we realize it's not our string. That anything that we call me or mine, they're just beads. That string, there's just one string and everybody's on it. Everything is on it. All of this, Krishna says, is strung on me. So it's like then all of a sudden, then we realize that we're unified and like, oh, Kasane, your beads are strung on the same string as my beads. That's kind of cool. Hey, you know, Donald Trump, you're a bead on my string. And, you know, our string is the same string. Our beads are really different, but far out. Look, we're, we're all tied together by the same thing. You know, I think that it, that's a, it's a profound teaching, but it's something that, you know, is really worth people at least trying to experience and, you know, doing some trial and error around it. And like I said, you know, getting supervision, getting, you know, getting training, getting support from other seekers, not doing it alone. So speaking of experiencing it for yourself, the pathway to that, in my experience, has been practice. And one of my own personal mystical experiences that really defined my path that I will never forget was when I was on the India pilgrimage with you, somewhere in the middle of the retreat, when we were practicing silence, after being in crazy Mumbai and visiting all the ashrams and climbing mountains and just this hecticness of all the beads. And all of a sudden, there was this chance to drop in with nature, with trees with food with other humans practicing silence and i experienced oneness for the first time in my life where i felt like i am the same as a butterfly as a tree leaf and we all are part of the same string and we're all perfect and beautiful exactly as we are and i got a glimpse into this beautiful consciousness divinity that has kept me practicing you know at a different level through the years but the pathway to that was 
in specific, you know, to get back to the human realm of it was meditation and also chanting with your partner, with Adriana. So talk to me about practice. What does that look like? What does that mean for you? And how can people take it on? Yeah, well, you know, looking at the this image of the string of beads, I actually have my mala right here in my hand. The mala, for those of you who don't know, is it's a string of beads that we use for doing mantra practice. And now they've also become yoga world accessories and necklaces and stuff. But originally they were a mantra counting tool, <laughs> mantra practicing tool. And so thinking about like the beads and the string, you could say that practice is looking at the whole thing, looking at the beads, looking at the string and pulling the beads apart from one another to look at the string. You know the string is there even if you don't pull it apart because the beads are hanging on something, yeah? But, you know, because your whole life is evidence of of spirit, of your whole life is evidence of that oneness, but everything captivates our attention so much. If it's something good, then we're really focused on the goodness of that thing. If it's something bad, then it's the we really focus on the pain of that thing. We don't, we can lose track of what that thing, that good thing or that bad thing is hung on. So practice, you know, by definition is whatever sort of gives you an opportunity to put all of the things aside for a moment and really try to connect to that string itself. And, you know, the practices that I mostly teach are the practices from the tradition of of yoga, you know, the inner practices of yoga, like meditation, mantra, you know, and that's both silent mantra repetition, but also, you know, chanting, namasankirtana, mantra practice, you know, chanting out loud, doing selfless service, you know, like seva, it's called, where you're, you're doing some kind of work just purely for the sake of serving, or studying sacred teachings, praying, writing in a journal as a practice, like not just like as a habit, but as a practice. And other ones too that I'm probably not remembering in this moment. But, you know, these are all things that what they do is they allow Harshada, David Harshada Wagner, this character that I play, it allows me to sort of like get off stage for a moment and remember that I'm actually the actor who's playing David Harshita Wagner. I'm not David Harshita Wagner. You know, like I'm this actor who's been cast in this role. And just like an actor coming off stage and then, you know, they go and they look in the mirror and they take off their mask that they were wearing on stage and, oh, there I am again. There's the string. The beads have, have quieted down for a moment. And then having reconnected to it, then we go back out on stage in, in, in a safer way. Then we go back into our life and get lost. I mean, that's part of the play is to get lost in love and get lost in fear and get lost in all of the, the circus of, of life, um, but not to get so lost, not to get permanently lost. And then eventually the practice can, can yield a fruit where you can do the two things simultaneously, where you can just be completely engaged in your life, completely engaged in all of the 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 blood and guts of, of human existence, 
all the while knowing and feeling in your bones your sacred essence at the same time. But until that point, then practice is the time where we get to put it all aside and just go right to that essence for a little while. So you drew a line between just simply journaling and journaling as a practice. Yeah. So what is the difference and how do you create that sacred space to make it a practice that is sacred? Yeah, I love that. Well, I could have made that distinction with almost any of the practices, you know, even with chanting, even with you know, doing hatha yoga asanas or meditation, you know, we can get into a thing where it's not really, we're not really, we forgot about the string. We're just focused on the bead, the bead of meditation, the bead of chanting. Oh, this is, you know, my voice is getting better. Oh, I'm learning how to play harmonium, you know, (laughs) Or, or, you know, take any practice and it can become something that isn't necessarily connecting us with essence. It just becomes a thing that we do. With journaling, you know, like lots of people write in diaries, but, you know, it's something that is, is common outside of, of spiritual practice. So I think that's why I highlighted that one. But definitely journaling as a spiritual practice, you know, sometimes it can be a great tool to prepare you for meditation and to just kind of dump out all of the words and thoughts and stuff that's in your head before you try to sit and connect to your heart. Sometimes it can actually be a sort of a conversation with God if you're able to like tap in and, and you know, really listen and start to channel, you could say, answers that, that are more connected to source. That was my practice for many years. I don't do it so much anymore, but for years and years, I would sit every day before I'd meditate and I would just have a conversation with spirit. And I'd ask questions and sometimes answers would come and sometimes they wouldn't. But it gave me an opportunity to attune myself to that voice, attune myself to that voice of, of wisdom and essence as opposed to just the voice of my ego and my, my neurosis. You said something else on the retreat. The divine speaks to us in a way in which we can understand. Yeah, always. Tell me more about that. Well, I mean, just in a simple in a simple way, it doesn't speak a foreign language to us that we don't understand. <laughs> you know, like this is so funny. It's like, well, the it's so isn't it interesting that you know God speaks Arabic in the Quran and you know Sanskrit in the Bhagavad Gita probably has more to do with the writers and the readers of the Quran and the Gita than it does the the voice of God. But because, you know, my like my teacher, Madhavananda is his name, and he talks about God as Ma. It's like the the supreme mother, the universal mother source energy. And he, you know, will talk about that Ma being like a mother that loves all of her children equally. You know, whether it's a person or a butterfly or, a, or, you know, a chair, you know, everything that's in creation gets held by her equally and totally appropriately. So, you know, the chair gets held by the universe as a chair, the butterfly gets held as a butterfly and the person gets held as a person. That's a very kind of groovy, cosmic, philosophical idea. But when it comes down to, again, where the rubber meets the road, God knows your love languages, <laughs> you know, 
spirit, spirit, if you know the five love language work, I think it's really cool. But God knows our love languages and knows how to get our attention and knows how to love us. You know, if we just put ourselves available to be loved and to be spoken to, we'll find that 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 energy really knows really knows how to do it and knows how to do that same thing that I was talking about with a spiritual teacher or a mentor where, you know, knows how to advocate for your greatness and really also knows how to starve your bullshit to death by not reinforcing it. If, if you're paying attention and, you know, I should just also say, because I said all that before and it sounded so, so groovy about, you know, teachers that, you know, advocate for your greatness, but, you know, are ruthless with your ego or whatever. You know, I am not always like that. You know, if you come to a public retreat or, you know, my online presence or whatever, I am too concerned with my appearances in a certain way to to be as ruthless as I probably should be <laughs> with people, especially as I get older, I find myself just, you know, getting sweeter and sweeter until there's a certain level of training where then I'm available for that. I just, you know, personally find that because of what we talked about before, a lot of people just get turned off if they get challenged too much. So, you know, like if you, if you come to a a retreat at a big place like Kripalu or, you know, see my work online or something, it might not be super challenging there, but that is all in service of getting people into a, kind of a context where that challenge can come, you know, in, in in equal portions with the love. Yes. And I have noticed you become softer and sweeter with time as well. <laughs> I've got bills to pay. I've got, I've got a family. <laughs> right. So speaking of bills to pay, that's actually exactly what I want to wrap up this conversation with is I originally I was going to ask you what guidance you have for entrepreneurs and healers at this time of change. And at the same time, I want to see if we can chat about the Red Road and maybe they even tie in to each other. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I think that they do definitely tie in together. So the Red Road is this Agla Lakota concept um, that I write about in my men's book that, you know, the, the Lakota way, they talk about the Red Road being like the way of honor and goodness and righteousness and the black road being the way of unconsciousness and um and you know really habit and just the default setting and that the black road that unconscious road is very wide and very flat and very easy to find <laughs> and easy to stay on and very popular you know all the all your friends will be there and the red road is relatively narrow and difficult to find and difficult to stay on and that's so the case with just living life and certainly once we step into this marketplace as a spiritual teacher or a healer um we have to be careful because you know as I said before, what people are going to buy is not necessarily what they need. And what they need, they might not want to buy. And when we have that pressure to make a living doing our healing work or doing our teaching work, it can be very easy to slip into that kind of black road thing where we're just trying to figure out, well, what's popular? 
what will get the most people to sign up or what will get the people coming back? Well, let me do that. Okay, well, people like this practice. So let me get trained in that practice. And I think that there needs to be a combination because, you know, the truth is, is that modern people are not going to relate to, you know, like Marpa. Marpa was Miller Apa's teacher who was just so harsh and so, so intense. And nowadays would just be called abusive. He would tell Miller Apa, you know, build me this tower 20 feet tall on, on that hill by the time I come back. And Milarepa would spend the whole year building that tower and Marpa would come back and be like, you idiot, I didn't tell you to build a 20-foot tower on that hill. Are you drunk? I told you to build a 15-foot tower on that place over there. Tear this down and build me what I told you to build by the next time I come. And he'd come back a year later and he would do the same thing over and over again. And that was Milarepa's training. Nowadays, people are not up for that. They want to be... Honestly, I think they need to be they need to be cuddled. You know, people need to be loved and soothed and you know, they need to be taken care of in this you know, very kind of basic personal way and, and you know, traditionally you could say that that's their ego, but I think that there's a, there's an element of that that's really important. My my Ayurvedic doctor once prescribed this morning sickness treatment which was the ashes of a burnt peacock feather. And, you know, when my kid's mom was pregnant, I tried to give her that. <laughs> and it was disgusting. And she refused to try it. And then she tried it and she almost puked. And then she threw the rest of it away. And it wasn't until I saw him, saw my Ayurvedic doctor a year later that he told me that I was supposed to mix the ashes with ghee and honey. <laughs> or else it would be inedible. <laughs> and so I think that, you know, it's a matter of, you know, knowing what is the ghee and honey and knowing what is the the medicine inside of it. And, you know, the black road, I think, happens when people just only do the ghee and honey because that's what people are buying. And just don't pay attention to, you know, what's the deeper part of it, you know, because they're like gong baths and, you know, that's really nice and it can be a really great practice. But, you know, when the Armageddon happens, you might not be able to find your crystal bowl. <laughs> so, so it's good to like, you know, have both, but to just make sure that as a teacher or as a healer, that you really know what the hardcore substance of what you're teaching is. And then if you want to be successful materially successful, then you'll need to find what the ghee and the honey is too. And and be able to do that in a way that, you know, is in integrity without losing the potency. I just want to soak in every word and listen to it over and over again. And I also want to make a public request that you start a podcast. Oh my gosh. So many people have asked that. Maybe you can you can kind of help me. A hundred percent. Wonderful. Yes. Yes. Okay. It's, it's kind of happening organically, you know, these days just over social media, but I think it would be good to just make it a little bit more official. Okay. Done. We'll talk. Yeah. So before we wrap up, I know I have to let you go. Is there anything that Harshad, I didn't ask you about that you feel called to share? Yeah. I just think that, yeah, the one thing is that the, the context that I do have that sort of deeper and more challenging 
mentoring in now is it does exist, but it's not something that you're going to be able to sign up for on my website. <laughs> that I, I just want to, I guess, just highlight that, that like, you know, if you go to my social media, you go to my website, there's lots of different things that you can do. I'm doing a Monday meditation class throughout the, the pandemic crisis, live stream, pay what you can. It's just meditation for fear and uncertainty. So many things are happening and I'm doing intense mentoring for people too. It's something that I've been reaching out to people that either have some some years on the path, some experience on the path that need a senior teacher, that need a senior mentor to really guide them through the later stages of spiritual work or people that are just ready to enter the spiritual work at that deep level from the beginning. Some people are. You were like that right from the beginning, as I recall. So that's available too, but that's all of that is something that people have to reach out to me personally. And, and that's, a, that's a relationship that we'll have to talk about, but that, that is available even though it's not advertised. The secret menu. Yeah, it's a secret menu. <laughs> Thank you so much, Harshita. We'll be chatting about your podcast shortly. And everyone listening, check out Harshita. I'm going to link to all of his resources and website in the show notes. And if you have the chance to meditate with Harshita, whether that's virtually or in person, your virtual meditations are just so potent. And I've had Glow membership just to be able to meditate with you, for, you know? So it's just, I love technology for that reason, because it gives us access to teachings and to each other in such a beautiful way. And I think right now, more than ever, we're being shown and sort of tested by the universe. Okay, how are we going to use this technology? I think it's being used in beautiful ways. So thank you so much for this conversation, for being a teacher, a mentor uh, to me and to so many. And um, I'll be hearing from you soon on your own podcast. All right, Ksenia, so much love. Keep up the good work. You're doing such amazing work. Thank you, Harshita. Okay, bye for now. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes and share it with a friend who you think could benefit from the message. Find all the show notes and all the resources on WokenWired.com and also join the WokenWired podcast listener Facebook group. It's a private group where you can connect with people who are like-minded and say hello on Instagram. Find me at Woke and Wired. Stay woke. Stay wired and take three deep breaths right now.